I just want to uh, really preach an extremely uh, simple, simple sermon today. I want to read a verse that uh, Peter, he wrote to his followers. And I just want to read the scripture, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. It just says a very simple truth that he was saying to his followers. He says, therefore, I always remind you about these things. I want you to say this out loud. Even though I know them already and I'm standing firm in the truth. He says in verse 13, it is only right that I should keep on reminding you as long as I live. I've said this many times, but I've been saying it actually just recently, that we should never get so used to the gospel message. We should never get used to Jesus dying on the cross. And that just becomes like, you know, like the ABCs of Christianity. It's so, it, we become so used to it that we actually forget the seriousness of it and the, and the weight of it, of, of what happened on that day that Jesus took our sins upon him and went to that cross. We tried to... Um, shield our little children from violence. We try to keep them, right? There's like a season of time that we want to keep them and we want to protect them and we want to keep them from, they don't need to know everything that's going on, right? We, so we put a protection around them. And then there's a time where the, you know, we start removing some of those protections and we start, they start to actually, we call that maybe like the age of accountability in Christianity, but you may know it in the world is just, you know, the, their, your innocence starts going away. And what's happening is, is they're starting to see some of the brutality in the earth and they're starting to see some of the realities of what's going on in the earth. And that's the moment really where Jesus uh, and his blood and his cross and his sacrifice makes more sense to them. That's when it starts to make sense as a young child who receives Christ they receive him just with the joy and the happiness and the love. Oh, he loves me, and he does. But that love actually starts to become more and more real the more we realize how fallen this earth is and what it really means to lay your life down. That's when it became real, and that's when the, the purchase of his blood for us became real. So we should never, ever get used to that. It becomes so easy. In fact... It's very easy for us to become removed from um, uh, the hard things and the harsh things that are going on around the earth, right? And the Lord protects us in a way that we talked a lot this year in, in 2020 about this normalcy bias. And that's, you know, we're not going to get into all that, but there's this human nature. What we do is we kind of like put this little cocoon around us and we shield ourselves from things that are hard to understand or things that are harsh, things that we don't want to talk about, things that we don't want to experience, and we kind of protect ourselves. And, and the world calls that, right, the white picket fence, right? That's what we call that. And so we as Christians, we must live in a joy that bypasses the earth. We must live in such joy and peace. Say, I want you to say that out loud. I want to live in joy and in peace. And at the same time, we must be so aware of the price that gives us that joy and peace. Have you ever heard the saying, freedom isn't free? 
Who's ever heard that saying? And that comes because so much bloodshed. For every freedom that we have, there was bloodshed. Every single freedom. And so the person who laid their life down, they don't want you to um, cry at their grave every single day. But we must remember that it was a, a purchase, that there was a price that was paid to give us the freedom that we have. Amen. We have incredible freedom in Christ. We have such victory. And I just wanted to tell you or remind you of a story. If you were living in the 1990s, and most of you, except for the young ones, uh, were living in the 1990s, and you may remember a story. There was a conflict going on in Somalia. Who remembers the conflict going on in Somalia in the 1990s? Well, when that conflict was going on, there was, you know, as many times uh, different groups uh, say, you know, I want your land, I want your resources, or whatever, right? And so what happens is, uh, you know, as powers start to struggle, the people inevitably suffer. And so what happened is, is a, a way to, for one side of the conflict to push against the other side of the conflict, they began to starve the people as, a, as an act of war. And in fact, millions were starved, and, and, and so uh, half a million in the early 1990s had already died, literally of starvation, not from gunfire, but starvation. So the UN and the US, they joined forces, and the US, they launched an operation called Operation Restore Hope. And what happened is, is uh, as the operation was put into place, they started having tremendous um, pushback from a warlord named Mohammed Farah Adid. And he fought against the U.S. and the U.N. And so finally the U.S. said, you know, and what's basically the way he's fighting was denying the food. We were trying to get food, so they would take the food, and more people were dying unnecessarily. And it became an act really of uh, an injustice towards humanity. It was no longer, you know, what side was right. These were people. So, um, so we devise a plan to deal with him and to take him out if possible, but if not him, then definitely his top commanders. And so many of you will know the history, but on October 3rd, 1993, while on a mission to take out these commanders, uh, an army ranger, he falls from a Black Hawk helicopter, and he's coming down a rope, and he falls, and so he has to be evacuated. And because of that, there was a weakness that this uh, ruthless warlord exploited, and he shoots the Black Hawk helicopter down. Because of all the confusion, and instantly now this operation is turning into a rescue mission, a second... In all the confusion, a second uh, Black Hawk helicopter is compromised and is also shot down. And you may know this story as Black Hawk Down. It's also known as the Battle of Megadishu. Insurgents shot two Black Hawk helicopters down with rocket-propelled grenades. And now our soldiers were behind enemy lines, so to speak, and it escalated into an 18-hour urban firefight. 18 U.S. soldiers lost their lives that day. And 
There are many, many stories. I actually found more than I even knew existed when I began to look it up. I felt compelled that I needed to look at this story, and as I did, there were more stories than I had realized of soldiers who talked about how they went into the conflict willingly. They went back in. In fact, one soldier who was a Christian, <clears throat> he was wiping off the back of the Humvee, and because there's little ones here, you can imagine what he's wiping. And he's got the orders, you've got to go back to rescue some men in there. And as he thought about it, he knew what that meant. He actually wrestled, and he was incredibly afraid, but he came to terms with the fact of what was going to happen and actually then came to total peace. He had just had a baby at home, but he knew that I know the Lord. If I can make it home to her, so be it. But if I pay the price over here, then I'm willing to do that for the men and for the orders that I'm given, I must do it. And he lives to tell about it. And there's other amazing stories like his who rescued them selflessly. And there's a code we have in the U.S. Armed Forces, which is never leave a fallen comrade. And you may know it as never leave a man behind. Who's ever heard that term? And you know, that term is actually... Not just a phrase, but it's actually so powerful, they actually drill it into the soldiers' minds. So much so, that it's not even that I'm compelled to rescue you. They drill it into their minds so much so that the guy who is suddenly now, you know, uh, called to do something heroic or brave or is now stuck behind enemy lines, he's had it drilled into his mind so much Never leave a man behind that he actually will have a new confidence and a strength to know that there's people coming to rescue me. He actually will, actu will actually have strength, even though there's going to be natural human fear, but knowing that that's the way we do it. We never leave a man behind, so somebody somehow, some way will come and help me. Many recount their human moments of fear, thinking how they were going to die, going into this conflict to help their fellow soldiers. But they put their fears aside and regarded their lives as secondary, and they risked everything to bring our soldiers home. Two men in particular showed incredible selflessness. There was two men, their names are Gary Gordon and Randy Shugart, and they were Special Forces Delta Force snipers. And basically what was happening is, is the superior said it's better for our snipers to stay in the additional Blackhawks and they can actually give air support. They can stay up here above and actually protect down there better. But what happens is, is these two men realize that at the second down site, their pilot is still alive. And they can actually see from above that there is an, this, a massive mob heading towards that crash site. Who remembers the story? Maybe you've seen the movie. In this movie, they met with the pilot, and they met with them so that it could be as accurate as possible. Obviously, it's still Hollywood, but a lot of those details are the truth. And so this mob is coming. So they are actually, it would be disrespectful to say that they were safe, considering 
that they're at war and, and considering two Blackhawks had just take, been taken down. But they were in a position of much greater safety up there in the air in the Blackhawk than they were on the ground. But these two men, they requested that they be dropped by themselves because there was no way. There, they had formed a wall and there was so many now that had suddenly come to this battle that they were... There was no way for the ground forces to be able to get to these sites before the mob would have gotten to the site. And, and obviously, we know what they would do to a downed U.S. pilot. So they request, and it's denied, because they know that that's not a great, it's not a great mission for you. We, you go in there, and it's not going to be great for you. They request a second time. It's denied. On the third time, because they refuse to, to give up, they request a third time to be put on the ground. And after the third request, the Black Hawk drops them 100 meters from the site, and they make it to the pilot. And the story told by the pilot, who is alive today and incredibly thankful, is that these two soldiers, they kept firing until they were out of every single bullet, until finally the two of them gave their own lives for this pilot. The two of them, Gary Gordon and Randy Shugart, who defended the crash site until they lost their lives, were both awarded the Medal of Honor. The Bible actually talks about this selfish selflessness in contrast to the selfishness of human nature, and it describes it as the greatest love. Who knows that term? The greatest love. The Bible says in the book of John, chapter 15, Verse 13, that there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. There is no greater love than to lay down your life for another. Now, this verse is a principle that we can honor and that those men honored, but that scripture was a prophecy, actually, that Jesus was speaking about himself. It was a prophecy about what he was about to do for us. The Bible says in the book of John, chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him. And he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. Much of human nature is to avoid conflict, to run as far from conflict as possible. But like an elite soldier who runs towards the conflict when everyone else is running away, Jesus went willingly from a place of safety above and came down to the earth toward the fight to rescue us trapped behind enemy lines. It says in John 10, continuing in verse 14, I am the good shepherd, so I sacrifice my life for my sheep, he says in verse 18, no one can take my 
life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. We must remember, today I want to remind us that Jesus volunteered. Jesus does have an internal struggle, just like those men would have, and just like that Christian on the back of that Humvee described, that there is fear, but he knows I must do it. Jesus talked with God in the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, the man on the back of the Humvee who went back and, and did live to tell about it, and today he goes all around the world and talks about the Lord and how the Lord protected him that day. But what he describes is that just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's this internal argument, there's this internal war, but Jesus knew what I must do because if I don't, they won't be rescued. The devil's got them in his grip and they're trapped behind enemy lines. And if I don't do this, there's no hope. Jesus could see from heaven that there was an enemy. There was a horde. There was a mob that was converging on human society that one by one, they were going to take us out, this enemy. But Jesus said, I will give my life and stand in the gap for those people. And so it says, I sacrifice it voluntarily. He says, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want and the authority to take it up again. It says in the book of Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 talking about our own humility, he says to be humble and he says, thinking of others as better than yourselves. And then he says in verse 4, don't look out for only your own interest, but take an interest in others too. And finally in verse 5, what he begins to talk about here in Philippians was the attitude that Christ has. Everybody say the attitude that Christ had. So when he's talking about us being humble, and when we talk about the, the, the idea that I'm going to look out for others and I'm going to think about others better than myself, he's, Jesus wasn't asking them in, in Philippians to think of anything different than what he thought of when he thought of us. So it says in verse 5, this is the attitude he had. It says in verse 6, Though he was God. We must remember that the Bible does not say that Jesus was a man who died, and because he did a really good job at dying, and because he was good at not sinning, that then God said, okay, now you can sit at my right hand. We must not forget, we must be reminded today that Jesus was already God. I want you to say it out loud, that Jesus was already God. Jesus was seated above already. He was seated in a position of protection of safety. He left his safety. It says he did not think of equality with God because that's what he was. We know that Jesus is equal with God. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But he said, he did not think of that equality as something to cling to, verse 7. Instead, he gave up his safety, his protection, really his throne, his kingdom. He put it all aside. He was ruling and reigning over the universe. We can't even understand that. It doesn't even make sense in the book of John 1.1, right? Uh, it talks about how God was with Jesus was with God and everything was made through him. 
Nothing was made that was made without him, and that Jesus came into the earth and became flesh. So it says here in Philippians chapter 2 that he took the humble position as a slave. Just like a soldier, a soldier is a slave. A U.S. soldier is a slave to the U.S. military, right? So God came up with this rescue plan. Jesus gets sent in to take us from the grip of the enemy. He took that position humbly. He was born a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. There's not an official statement from the U.S. military, but there were photos that were kind of horrific, so I'll protect you today. But there was some bodies during that event the next day that made the news of bodies being dragged through the streets. Now, the family of those soldiers will tell you that it was them. There's, that's not officially stated by the U.S. because the U.S. said it's not important who it was. Men gave their life. Lots of sacrifice that day. But isn't it interesting that even their bodies being dragged through the street like Jesus, but they laid their lives down for another. They put themselves aside. Jesus did the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus put himself aside, put his throne aside, his kingdom aside. And he did not need to do it. And he was not just God in heaven who then said, okay, I'll go live on earth like humans and I'll show you that I can live on the earth like a human no, he didn't just come and live on the earth as a human. The Bible says, Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted as we are, and yet he did not sin. Hebrews 7.26, he was holy and harmless. He was undefiled. He was separate. And it says in 1 Peter 2.22 that he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. He didn't just leave his throne and come into the earth, but then he came into the earth and he lived a holy life, a separated life. And the Bible says in Isaiah 52 verse 14, he did this willingly and this is what he came willing to do. It says in Isaiah 52 verse 14, many were amazed when they saw him. The Bible says that his face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. We can't even imagine the weight upon his shoulders of the sin of the world. The weight of Satan taunting him that there's no way you're going to be able to finish this journey. He was in safety, and he said, my, my man down there, there's a woman down there that needs my help, and I am willing to pay the price, and I know what that means, and I will do it for them because I love them. He was so disfigured that he seemed hardly human, and from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. It says in Matthew 26, verse 67, Then they began to spit in Jesus' face, and they beat him, with their fists, and some slapped him, jeering, prophesied to us, Messiah, who hit you that time? Matthew chapter 27, verse 26, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and he ordered Jesus flogged. 
with a lead-tipped whip. In fact, these torturers whipped him, we know through science today, because we can see what he was going through, that science can reverse it back and find out what was happening, that they had actually ripped internal organs, and now the fluid in his lungs, blood and fluid in his body and his stomach, and all of that was all mixing together, and it was even drowning him while he was being crucified, which was torturous enough, drowning in his own lungs. And then it says they turned him over to be crucified, and it, said, it says... In verse 27, that some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and they called out the entire regiment and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and they wove a thorn, thorn branches into a crown and they put it on his head and they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery and they taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and grabbed the stick and struck him on the head with it. And when they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and put on his own clothes again. And then they led him away to be crucified. Verse 33, and when they went out to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, the soldiers gave Jesus wine mixed with bitter gall. But when he had tasted it, he refused to drink it. And after they had nailed him, verse 35, to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. What a, just a total disrespect. This is just some guy. They don't even realize what Jesus is doing, the price that Jesus is paying. <clears throat> then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. In verse 39, the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you are the Son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. And the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he is the King of the Jews, King of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now and we will believe in him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And even one, it's really one of the revolutionaries who were crucified with him, ridiculed him in the same way. Why would Jesus leave his peace and safety to go through all of this? Jesus did all of this because his people were trapped behind enemy lines. And if he didn't rescue them, there was no hope. It says in a prophecy about Jesus in the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, and he has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that the captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. It says in Psalm 146, verse 7, He gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. 
The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and widows, and he frustrates the plans of the wicked. Thousands of years ago, an evil warlord shot us down. He shot humanity down when he tricked Adam and Eve, and he sought to abuse us, to trample on us, and to kill us. But Jesus said, I'll rescue them even if I have to die to save them. It says in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 6, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. It says, verse 7, that now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. Though someone might be willing, perhaps, to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Jesus not only laid his life down, but imagine Jesus was that soldier and came up to the man <laughs> to rescue him and, and debated with him with how good he's been and if he deserves to be saved. When Jesus came to rescue us, the Bible says that he did it while we were still sinners. Not only did he leave heaven and leave safety and leave his throne, and not only did he, was he willing to be subjected to not just physical torture, but verbal torture as I read, just verbal abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse, he did that for us, and not only was he without sin, undeserving of it, but the Bible says that we, simultaneously, the very men who were nailing him to the cross, the men who whipped his back, the men that were walking by and cursing him, Jesus said, I'm not just doing it for those that are good and those that are righteous, but I'm on this cross for you as well. I want you to know today, that Jesus is still fighting for us. Jesus didn't just fight once, but Jesus has been in the fight since the beginning. The enemy loses, by the way. Who knows that? Amen. Jesus is still fighting for us. In fact, the Bible says that before Peter ever repented, Peter, we know the story, right? Peter, he denies Christ three times. He says, Lord, I'll never do it. And the Lord says, you will do it tonight before the rooster even crows. And the Bible says that before he even repented, this is what it says. And I love this scripture. It says in the book of Luke, chapter 22, verse 31. And this is such a promise to us that the Lord is fighting for us, that before we even make the wrong decision, before we even go the wrong way, whatever position you're in, whatever the enemy has done in your life, wherever he has pushed you and, and trapped you, the Lord is fighting for your life. And the Bible says, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you each like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. Jesus prayed. He had been praying. Jesus knew what was going to happen, and he was praying for Peter before Peter even denied him. And the Bible says 
that after Jesus died, and after he ascended to heaven again, seated back where he was before, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Therefore, he is able, that is Jesus, Jesus is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. It says that he lives forever. I want you to say that word out loud because even if you think your mind understands it, it doesn't. Because when pressure comes and when trials come and, th and, and, and thoughts come and stuff we don't understand comes, internally we all battle with a debate, is God really for me? I know he died on the cross. I believe that I'll go to heaven. I believe he loves me that way, and I believe in his blood. But does he care about this moment right now? Does he care about my hurt right this minute? And I want you to say it out loud so that you believe it. Because your mind, the enemy will try to use your mind and lie to you. We must remember the price that if he says that if I didn't even... He didn't even spare his own son. And the Bible says, and I tell you this often because it needs to be said, the Bible implies that if there was something else he could do, he would have done it. That he did everything for us because he loves us. And we must know that. Your spirit must know today. And I pray you'd be encouraged by this. That the Bible says that, and I want you to read this out loud, he lives forever to intercede with God. On my behalf. The Bible says forever. Jesus didn't just get in the fight and say, well, I did my job and I fought for you and now you're on your own. You need to know today at this very moment that whatever you're fighting with or whatever you're about to fight with or whatever you fought with, that you were never alone. That's what gives us hope. Just like the soldiers who are trapped behind enemy lines, we must come, we must have it drilled into our minds with such stability that God loves us so much that he didn't forsake us. And, and I don't know how he's going to rescue me. I don't know how he's going to get me out of this thing that I'm in. I don't know how he's going to deal with what's going on on the earth now, but I know that he will never leave us behind. My rescuer is coming. Amen. In fact, our great confidence comes from the fact that he will never leave us. Even if it cost him his life, he refused to leave us behind. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, it says, to be strong, and many of you know this verse, and it says it again in Joshua, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, and do not panic. Do not be afraid and do not panic, for the Lord your God will personally, come on church, do we believe it, that God personally goes ahead of us? God is personally going ahead of us? God is personally in the fight? with you, you are not alone. You are not alone today. In fact, and I'm just, I'm preaching fast because I don't want to keep you guys forever and I just want to give you verse to verse. I'm not giving you a lot of Adam today and a lot of commentary. Is that all right? But it says in the book of John, Dawn's the one struggling here. Dawn's got to follow with me. <laughs> scripture after scripture after scripture. She's not used to this job. Dawn, you're doing a great job. John chapter, it's okay if you missed some too. That was fine. I didn't even notice. 
John chapter 14, verse 18, it says, I will not abandon you as orphans. Jesus, before he died, John 14, this is the time, the most intimate time that he ever had with his disciples. Those few chapters right there in the book of John, he's spending some intimate time with them and encouraging them and building them. And he tells them an encouragement we must never forget. I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus is on his way today. He's on his way again. He says, I'm with you always, Matthew chapter 28, when he gave the great commission to the disciples, his very last words, everything he could have said, whatever it could have been, the last words, he tells them to go out and to do what I've done with you, the great commission, go out and preach the gospel, make disciples, but the very last words, Jesus could have chosen any words he wanted to say their last, and it says in Matthew 28, verse 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you know that Jesus is on time? We say this in Christianity, and it becomes Christianese, but it's a truth. Jesus is on time every time. Amen. Sometimes we're waiting for him to come through. You need to know that if he hasn't come through for you right now, if you've been believing and you've been praying and you're like, Lord, I've been crying, I've been calling, and I feel alone, and I see an enemy approaching me. I'm trapped here. I'm all alone, and I know what's going to happen when that enemy gets to me. I can see on the horizon what's coming my way, and I don't know where you are. You need to know that just like those soldiers that could see from above, and they were already planning, he didn't know that down there, but there were men who were pleading with their superior officers, let put me in the fight because I'll stand in the gap for him. You need to know right now that even if you feel alone and even if you don't know, I don't know where the help's going to come from and I don't know how, you need to know that Jesus above is talking with the Father and they're talking with the angels and they're having a conversation about your situation right now. Put me in the fight because I'll deal with it. Do you know that it was so perfect if you've been reading in our Bible plan this week, we just read in the book of Matthew, sometimes we just breeze over this part. Who breezed over the genealogy? Matthew chapter 1. You know, But you know, I noticed something that the Lord highlighted to me, and I'm sure you've noticed this before. The Bible says, Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, all those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to Babylonian exile, and 14 from Babylonian exile to the Messiah. Do you think that happened by accident? You know what? The, you know what? You don't even have to be a Christian, I don't think, to know that the number seven is God's number. We're not obsessed with numerology, right? But that's God's number. That's the Bible. And the perfection of God, that's what that means. In the sevens, Jesus came at exactly, and we read that verse and the other verse there as well, that at just the right time, Jesus came right when the rescue needed to happen. Amen. And I want to encourage you with this, finally. Man, I'm getting excited just to read this verse. It says in the book of Revelation, <laughs> 
If we were to take a poll across the world and we were to say, is Jesus peaceful or is Jesus a warrior? What do you think the poll would be worldwide? Peaceful. And of course he is because the Bible says that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But you know that Jesus, when you read your Bible, Jesus is, is the epitome of peace. And I thank God that I, I'm on his side, right? Thank God in this church, we are on his side. We have his peace in our lives. But you know, don't get on the other side of Jesus. Come on. We read the word. Jesus is a warrior, and he is not very kind to his enemies. Now, he doesn't want anyone to be his enemy. But when the time comes for the Lord to deal with his enemies, it is ruthless. He is a warrior. And this is what it says in the book of Revelations, chapter 1. It says in verse 12, When I turned to see who was speaking to me, it says it was someone like the Son of Man. And it says in Revelations 1, verse, it says he was, uh, verse 13, he was wearing a long robe and a gold sash across his chest. Verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And it says that his eyes were like flames of fire. And it says that his feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. And he held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 16 verse 20 says, The God of peace, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The book of Revelations chapter 22 says three times, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. You need to know that the same Jesus who sat in safety and in protection, he let this world abuse him once. This world will not abuse him again. When he comes again, he's coming riding on a white horse, and he has a sword in his hand, and every single enemy will be struck down. You need to know in the meantime that the plan is in process. You need to know that your life matters. You might feel alone right now, but you need to know today that your life is 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 in his eyes. It's in his heart. He's already working it out, how he's going to deal with the enemy that thought that they were going to abuse you. Amen. 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 That's our re resurrected Lord. We do celebrate that he gave his life, but we celebrate even more. That's why we call it Resurrection Sunday. Even more than that he died is that he rose again and took he took the keys, took the keys of sin and death. 
He took back the victory. He is standing. And I, I think that in heaven, things are getting ready. You know, I don't know the timeline, but I believe it soon means soon. He said soon, 2,000 years ago. So I would assume that soon means even sooner than it did then. Amen. And I believe he's coming soon. Amen. That he's going to rescue his people from this earth and from the plans and purposes of the enemy. So I just want to bless you, and I want you to enjoy your family today. I want you to remember him this day. That this is his day. And just know when you're, today when you're with your family that you are not alone. Just look around at each other and be thankful that God has already done what he's done in you. And in fact, look at what he's done so far as a promise. That's what gives you hope, gives you strength. He didn't leave me before. I've had it pounded in my head. He hasn't left me so far. I know somehow, some way, he's going to come through for me again in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you.